0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 18th, we're studying 2 Timothy 4, verses 9-22. through St. Paul closes his second letter to Timothy with final encouragement to the young pastor concerning a possible visit, even as Paul expresses certain hope that the Lord will rescue him into his heavenly kingdom help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeff Hemmer. Pastor Hemmer serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois. Pastor Hemmer, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Pastor Apple, it's good to be with you.
0: For context this morning, Pastor Hemmer, we've got the whole letter of 2 Timothy before us. What do we need to know about this epistle going in, preparing to read the concluding thoughts from Paul today?
1: So these are sort of final words from Paul. This is one of his uh, latest writings, as far as we know, as far as we can tell. And at the beginning part of chapter four, he has sort of said his, his, it's sort of his, his culminating argument, um, his, his biggest exhortation to Timothy, this young pastor, encouraging those who will follow Paul, in proclaiming the gospel that was entrusted to Paul. Once Paul is gone, he wants the, the gospel to continue. Paul, after his death, will fade away, but the Word will endure. And so you have this, this very moving exhortation, um, sort of as a, a father in the faith to one of his children in the faith, a sort of passing on the mantle to Timothy here at the end of this second letter to him, um, verses 1 to 8 were, were sort of chocked full of commands, exhortations, things that Timothy must do in his office as a pastor. Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort, um, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then and then Paul's words about himself, I am being poured out, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, the crown of righteousness is before me. And what lies before Timothy are all of these things, these tasks of the office of the ministry that he will do in Paul's stead after Paul um, is martyred, killed for his confession of the faith. And so Paul has this confidence in himself. He wants to impart a similar confidence in the Word to Timothy, that he'll stand firm in, in all of what he has received from Paul. And then when we come to the the very end of this letter, it feels much like a postscript, hmm. It seems like everything draws to a very tight conclusion at the end of verse 8, and then it's as if, following his signature, we have this sort of P.S. Come to me soon, and then this list of names, people who have been influential, some positively, some negatively, people who have been helpful or adversarial towards Paul during his... uh, during his ministry, uh, then he'll have sort of words of encouragement that seem seem to be sort of self-directed, and finally he'll have some greetings directed specifically to people, uh, most of whom seem to be in the congregation at Ephesus, where Paul had spent a lot of time, um, where uh, Timothy presently is as he's receiving this letter, and then a final greeting at the very end, and it's sort of written. Uh, it continues what Paul did, this, this conclusion, continues what Paul did in the first eight verses of the last chapter, and that is to sort of hand on the torch, And and as he is fading away, he's demonstrating that the Church has never really been the Church of Paul, it's always been the Church of the Lord Jesus, and it's never been just about one figure, one personality. One author, even, even the author of, of 13 different epistles to churches throughout Asia, uh, places where Paul has been, places where he's desired to go. But it's never, it's never been about Paul. And so even as Paul is fading out of the forefront um, into in, in his martyrdom, and his eventual martyrdom, into, uh, probably as he envisions it, obscurity, the church is still functioning. And there's still this whole host of folks who are there to carry on this work and to be of of service and support to Timothy as he is preparing to uh, carry out all these commands that Paul gave him that really come not, not from Paul, but from the Lord Jesus, who puts men into the office of the ministry that Paul had just given him in the preceding verses.
0: I like the way that you you tied those verses together, which we're going to read here in just a moment, that Paul, as he comes up upon his death, and he knows that that's coming, he reminds Timothy through all these names that it, it has never been the church of Paul. This is the church of Christ, the one that belongs to him, which he purchased by his blood to cleanse her, to make her holy and spotless and blameless, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And I think that that's a helpful thing to keep in mind, because as you said, this text does read kind of like a postscript. There's going to be some doctrinal things that we're going to draw from it, certainly. But it is one of those texts in the scriptures where you get a lot of these names, and sometimes we don't know what to do with texts like this. I mentioned at the beginning of Paul's letters, sometimes we tend to rush through the words like grace, mercy, and peace be to you, because we think, well, we know what what's there, Sometimes I think we tend to rush through a section like this because we we don't know what's there in the sense that, I mean, we're, and we're going to talk about this, we don't know who all of these names are. And yet to to see how Paul, by listing all these names for Timothy, does pass that torch, give him the, the mantle going forward as that reminder that, look, Timothy, this ministry that, that I've fulfilled now in my own time is is still going on through you, and it will go on after you, too. This is Christ's church, and he is faithful, and he will continue to do that ministry, even after Paul and Timothy, after all these people are gone, some of these names have faded into obscurity. Your name, my name, might fade into obscurity, but Christ's church will go on. And I I think that's at least one thing. Just generally speaking, we can glean from a text like this, even as we struggle through some of these names and we're not sure the exact historical situation, we've got that firm foundation of this is Christ's church and he's going to be faithful through these people, whatever their names may be. Any, any other broad comments on the usefulness of a text like this in some of that obscurity?
1: Well, I think it also helps us realize that Paul is writing to very real people, very, real hearers of the word that he has proclaimed, recipients of the letters that he has sent. And even if, if we have lost some of the details about who many of these people are, except sometimes when, when their names are peppered in uh, some of the other epistles from Paul, sometimes we've, we've stumbled across them a little bit in the account of the Acts of the Apostles. But for the most part, we, we don't know very much about them at all and yet it reminds us that that Paul's letter fits in a very certain context and and there are real people receiving his letter such that it's not it's not a sort of once upon a time tale any one of these people could have taken issue with what Paul said in the same way that that you have you know the the 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus place that event in in a very historical place. It's not a, again, it's it's not a fairy tale. It's not something that someone has fabricated. In fact, it's so true that you could go have a conversation with any of these eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. In the same way here, you have people that you could have a conversation with, who would confirm the word that Paul has proclaimed who would confirm the work that God d- has done in the congregation there at Ephesus in in what he's done through the the hands and mouth of this young pastor Timothy it it reminds us that this this is not it's not a fanciful story it's not the the later work of a variety of editors it's not the the church's product that you know when she wants to consolidate power into the the hands of her, uh, you know, powerful clergy hierarchy. She writes a letter that that lays out hundreds of years after Paul even existed what what the function and the tasks of the pastoral office are. No, these are these are people who have, you know, in that day they would have had relatives and friends and addresses and their their people who were real and who would have confirmed all of this as as what God has been doing through the hand and the pen of Saint Paul so there it, it gives us even though we've we've lost some of the details it reminds us that this word which is still for us today was first and foremost for those hearers in that day and it, it shows our continuity. With, with the people then, right? We we have all kinds of people who, even if, you know, though their names are on the records of, of churches and the membership roles, the, the records of official pastoral acts, I baptized so-and-so then and buried this person then, those names, again, are are real people with real stories and who have been really affected by the Word and work of God, and and though people hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, won't know who any of the folks of our congregations are, they nevertheless have a connection to them in that they're the same recipients of the Word of God. They're the, the same people for whom God has been since the, the beginning of, of His Church the same people for whom he's been working his salvation by means of his word and his sacraments. And so, though we may not know exactly who a, a Pudens is, uh, we were talking about uh, Putin's and uh, Eubulus before we began recording, uh, we, we don't know who those guys are, and yet we know that when we fade into obscurity five years, 500 years from now, will be in the in the same good company of these people who are not obscure to the Lord who has called them by name and who used them as as instruments of his will in their own day.
0: Very well said that the Lord knows us by name. We're seeing here a picture of that great cloud of witnesses that the, that's the language that the writer to the Hebrews uses, the great cloud of witnesses and here are some of those names which we may not know who they are today, but but those like Linus and Eubulus and Pudens and Claudia later, we will know them one day. They'll be in that, that great company of saints that, that we see the picture in Revelation 7. We'll, we'll know them one day, even if we can't perfectly identify them here today. So with that, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22, the conclusion to this epistle. Paul writes, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself. For he is strongly opposed to our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus it, remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. That is the conclusion of this epistle, Second Timothy 4, verses 9 through 22. Pastor Hammer, one of the themes that comes through more than once is that Paul desires Timothy to come to him, to come visit him. Now, Paul's in prison for this letter, likely in Rome, probably near the end of his life, so the the late 60s AD, probably. And he wants Timothy to come, which I, I think, so I'm not sure if I've got a question for you other than maybe just to let you respond. I mean, it really shows the if I can say the human side of Paul, I know, I know maybe it's me because I'm a pastor. I often look at Paul and his example and almost see him in sort of a, a superhuman way, like just put him on a pedestal and, and to a degree, yeah, he's an apostle, but you see this very human side of Paul here that he's near the end of his life. He's all by himself. He's lonely and he wants his dear son to come visit him. And that's just, it's a very, it, it puts some flesh and blood on what otherwise might seem a very uh, a, a figure that's sort of out there, and how could I ever attain that? No, he's he's a man just like I am.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And he knows what's coming. He knows. He's just said in the previous couple verses. He knows that his his martyrdom is imminent. He knows he's he's about to be killed, and you you get a sense of the the kind of loneliness that that Paul might be experiencing. You get a sense, probably of. Of the fear that he's experiencing, he he wants the the company of the one to whom he's been a father in the faith. Luke is with him, but if he could, if they could also bring Mark. But Paul, he doesn't he doesn't quite command Timothy to come, and this this I think is is interesting um, that. He, he sort of backs away from, from giving a clear exhortation. And we could speculate why this could be. If if Timothy were unable to come before Paul is killed, maybe he doesn't want him uh, living with the guilt of that. Paul told me to come, and I didn't come, or I didn't get there in time. But in verse 9 here, and then later in verse 21, um, Paul, Paul says this, do your best to come to me, here in verse 9, uh, he says soon, in verse 21, he puts a little more of a timeline on it before winter, um, and it, it seems to be exactly that. Paul's humanity is on full display um, in this, what seems to be kind of a, a postscript to the very forceful Proclamation he had at the beginning of chapter four. Now, now he lets us into perhaps the, the the feelings, the anxieties, the concerns that he has, and his own need for encouragement here at the end of at the end of his life. How how will he make a bold and clear confession of the faith, even in the face of death? Well, he won't do it alone. This is the nature of the Lord's church. You you mentioned earlier uh, all these names are those of that great cloud of witnesses, and and for Paul, they are those whom he knows by name and from whom he can expect encouragement and exhortation for him as he nears the finish line of, of the race that he has been completing, or in his own words, the race he has just finished and having kept the faith. The ones who will encourage him to remain steadfast in his confession of Christ crucified, even in the threat of of persecution and death.
0: The first name that Paul mentions in verse 10 is Demas, And, and he is one of those, as you said, Pastor Hammer, some of these Paul brings up in a negative sense, some in a positive sense. Demas is brought up as one who has fallen in love with this present world, and so has deserted Paul. What do we know about Demas, if, if anything? And then talk a little bit about what that means, that he's fallen in love with this present world and he's deserted the Apostle.
1: So uh, Demas is one of Paul's co-workers. Um, I forget where, where we encounter his name um, the first time. Um but so he he's he's been with paul in um, in some of his missionary journeys, and whatever this means, he has left paul he's deserted me and gone to thessalonica and and Paul's charge against him is that he's done this because he is in love with the present world um, maybe that means he has Fled in order that uh, Paul's fate might not be his fate—imprisonment and eventually martyrdom. Um, maybe, maybe he's lost his nerve for a moment. Maybe, maybe he's apostatized. Maybe he's completely given up uh, the love of Christ in in both directions—the love that Christ has for him and the love that responds by willingness to receive. Uh, forgiveness of sins from Christ, or or maybe maybe the accusation is is a little bit harsh. Maybe um, maybe he's not completely abandoned his faith in order to desert Paul and flee to Thessalonica. Um, whatever it is, Paul seems stung by Demas's departure, um, and. Whatever the situation for Demas, we, we can hear in this a kind of warning as well, that love of the world is always a kind of siren song trying to lure us away from our confession of the faith and our willingness to endure all things—persecution, trial, tribulation, perhaps martyrdom— for the sake of, of confessing Christ, um, and since this is the last we'll hear of him, we don't know whether Demas goes on to serve in the church somewhere, uh, or whether he's completely uh, taken away from the faith by this love of the present world, whatever precisely that entails. It, it remains a, a very clear warning for us, and I'm sure that's how Paul intends it for his audience as well that love of the world is always, always rejection of God. Um, and and here, right, that's what we say in the first commandment. We must fear love and trust in God above all things, even in the face of adversity, when the world offers comfort and security and safety simply for rejecting the message of Christ and Him crucified, then our love must be for god instead and love of the world could could manifest itself in love of self in love of goods in desire for for shelter and safety and relief from persecution when when to embrace any of those things at the cost of the faith that's been given to us turns us away from love of god in favor of love of, of the world
0: What particular love of the world Demas may have had, as you said, is is unknown to what extent his love of the world carried him away from the Christian faith or didn't. It's hard for us to know, but I think you're exactly right that this does stand as a warning to us. I'm reminded of what Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower when he talks about the seed that is sown among the thorns and how the thorns grow up and they choke that growing plant. And he talks about those being the cares of this world that would choke our faith, and then such that it withers in the sun, that that danger that's there. Or uh, St. John talks the same way in his first epistle. He talks about, do not love the world. And as you said, when you, when you start to love the world, you begin to reject the love of God. No one can serve two masters, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think in the in the context then here, in Second Timothy chapter 4, just in the very previous text, Paul talked about... The crown of, of righteousness that's awaiting those, not only Paul, but all those who love the Lord's appearing, which would be the opposite of the Lord's, of loving the world, would be loving the Lord's appearing, having our, our hope, our let's well, use the language of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount again, to have our treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, rather than here on earth where all of those things happen and that's Christians love the lord's appearing that's where our our love is set demas apparently started to fall away from that and and that serves again as a warning to us to hold on to isn't that the way John writes in the book of revelation to hold on to the the first love that we have one of the the condemnations i think of and one of the seven churches i forget was that they lost their first love and and here it's like paul's paul's using very similar thoughts here demas has lost his first love in some sense hold on to that love for the lord's appearing i think exactly. we'll, i think pastor Himmer, we're going to go ahead and take our break a little bit early before we start digging into a few of these other names you're listening to sharp iron here on kfuo take a short break but we'll be right back please stick around Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 18th. We're studying 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. We've got Pastor Jeff Hemmer with us. He serves at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights. Pastor Hemmer, we were talking about Demas. His love for this world led him to desert Paul and go to Thessalonica. The next two people Paul mentions are Crescens, who has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. This is in the context of people who have left Paul Do Crescens and Titus, do they have the same sort of condemnation that Paul gives to Demas, or is something else going on with them?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting that that Paul has such a harsh condemnation of Demas, uh, uses language that he has deserted me in his going to Thessalonica, that he has replaced uh, love of God with love of the world. And Crescens and Titus also have gone away, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, but it seems like their departure may have been on better terms, or something such that Paul doesn't have as strong of a condemnation, or really any condemnation for them, um, in in the way that he does uh, have harsh words against Damas.
0: After that then comes Luke. Luke is with Paul at the moment, he says, and Paul also tells Timothy, go get Mark, bring him with you. He's very useful to me for ministry. We, these are two names that probably are a bit familiar to us because Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. And here Paul's talking about both of them being his companions. Tell us a little bit about these two men and and what they're doing there with Paul.
1: Yeah, and we would have encountered both of them in the account of the Acts of the Apostles. Both of them have been traveling companions of Paul. Uh, Luke, uh, being the author of of both the Gospel uh, that bears his name and also the Acts of the Apostles, Luke will not use his name quite as much, though when in in the the accounts of Paul's journeying, the voice changes from kind of a third-person description of, of what's going on to a first-person we uh, narration of of what's going on, then we sailed or we were shipwrecked or or those kinds of things, Uh, that's that's when you know Luke is sort of letting you in on uh, the change of perspective because now he is a part of that story as well. So you have Luke traveling with St. Paul on some of his missionary journeys, um, particularly towards the end. Um, and now here he says Luke alone is with me, so it seems as if his um, influence with Paul has has remained fairly consistent through the uh, the later part of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, Mark was a, a companion of Paul's until they have a bit of a falling out, um, and Paul and Mark will uh, for a time go their separate ways. Now, in that, Paul wants Mark to uh, to come back, um, bring Mark with you when you come. He is very useful to me for my ministry. It seems like there's probably been a, a kind of reconciliation um, that that now, you know, the young Mark uh, is again counted as one useful to the apostle. And again, this this I wonder if this kind of shows some of. Paul's human characteristics—that um, he's, you know, at times um, there's a bit of a falling out when there's a disagreement between Paul and Mark, but at the end he's he's glad to receive Mark again, and and would himself like to be encouraged by Mark, and also finds Mark useful for the the perpetuation of, of Paul's ministry, um, which which makes me kind of wonder if maybe his his criticism of demas is um just sort of off the cuff maybe a little over the top maybe he's not completely in love with the world maybe it's just paul and demas had a bit of a falling out before demas went went away to thessalonica that's my reading into the text to be sure but but now you see these two evangelists luke being there um and and mark presumably on his way back or in Paul's mind he wants him to come back um, to other big figures from the New Testament that Paul wants to have there um, as his death draws near.
0: I know this is a bit of speculation because it's hard to know exactly when Paul wrote 2nd Timothy in terms of the the timeline and how that might relate to the writing of the Gospels by Mark and Luke, but it is <laughs> I think it's at least telling that you see these three key New Testament writers interacting with each other, that Paul knows both both Mark and Luke. He's done ministry with them. He's traveled with them. And I mean, I I just, I want to say, and I suppose I don't, I can't say it with absolute certainty, but I want to say that Paul knows of their writings and that he's interacting with those writings. I don't know. Maybe that's a bit of speculation. Certainly. What do you think, Pastor Hammer?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. If, if this is, you know, in the second half of uh, the the '60s, towards towards the end of the '60s, sixty-seven, sixty-eight, thereabouts, um, we know, um, presumably, Paul is has been martyred before the year of our Lord seventy, so. Um, this has to be towards the, the tail end of his life there, um, so late 60s. And most, uh, most conservative datings for the uh, at least the, the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, would, would have had them all um, written by this time, and they, they have an immediate authority to them these accounts of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to uh, the authors Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Paul, we know, is already familiar with these men, um, and knows presumably knows their writings um, as well, and knows their their composition of a gospel, and and I assume he he has familiar, familiarity with that, um, as as those texts would have begun to be circulated around um, being read in the churches, the places where Paul has done ministry, where he's planted congregations or ministered to uh, congregations that already existed. Um, He would have lots of familiarity with with the readings that are um, being treated as authoritative in those congregations. So Mark and Luke, I think it's safe for us to say would have been known by this point as authors of accounts of the gospel
0: right and and interacting with paul here yeah, i mean it's just it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. fantastic yeah. thing to to see because I mean obviously the New Testament is written by different authors, but to see those authors interacting with each other during their lives, I mean I think it just it, and not that you and I are, are doubting the credibility, but it just lends so much more credibility to what we have here in the New Testament witness that these aren't sort of separate accounts. Paul's doing his own thing and Mark and Luke are kind of making stuff up. That's some of the very, that's maybe very critical scholarship that would go that far, but no, this is, I mean, these, these men knew each other. They're working together and and they're writing the same. I mean, as you said, Mark and Luke write accounts of the gospel. It's the one gospel of Jesus Christ. They're writing an account of it, but it's that one gospel. It's that one good news that all these three men are sharing. And that Paul is, is, encouraging timothy hold on to that good news hold on to that word of truth so he he continues then verse 12 he mentions tychicus who's being sent to ephesus maybe maybe tychicus is going to ephesus to fill in for timothy while timothy travels to see paul something like that tychicus is mentioned in other letters too paul also says in verse 13 to timothy when you come bring my cloak he tells him where it is and also books and above all parchments that's a interesting thing what the cloak okay it's going to be winter he says so it makes sense he want a cloak what about the books and the parchments any idea on those pastor hammer
1: yeah it's hard to say um books um and then scrolls parchments um probably uh the especially the scrolls would be um the uh, the hebrew scriptures the things that that paul had been brought up on um, as he was uh, being trained to be a, a pharisee among pharisees well educated in the law and presumably there's there's some scriptural context there um maybe other letters collections of of things that uh, that have been written, the gospel from from the hands of others. That's being proclaimed. Um, I think there's probably a sense to that. That what he's asking for um, are not sort of you know his his favorite texts of Homer or something like that. <laughs> um, but but these are um, scriptural texts or you know the the books from his. You would wouldn't say like you know, his, his pastoral study, because Paul's kind of a, a man without uh, any specific location, um, but but they are the, the things that he has depended upon that that contain the Word of God for him. Hmm. And so now, approaching his death, that's that's also what he wants. Hmm. Um, and I, I've also heard um, some pastors say that maybe the, the cloak that he asks for may be more than just uh, a kind of Coat; it may be uh, a kind of vestment um, Hmm. for him as well so here he is imprisoned has has no need of you know if if these are ecclesiastical books and scrolls scriptures and and things with some authority to them then maybe the cloak that he's asking for is also some uh, element of the office as well Hmm. that uh, would have given Paul comfort might have served to encourage him, might have reminded him of, of the nature of the office that he occupies as something that doesn't belong to him. This is still what, what vestments confess for us and for our people, that the office is not about the man in the office, but the office of the pastor is about Christ. And so what do we do with the guy? We cover him up, and we don't care You know, if he's a sharp dresser or if he's, you know, if his fashion sense is a little bit dated or completely non-existent, we don't care. We cover him up. We put camouflage on him so that he matches the rest of the furniture in the church, and all we want from him is to be an instrument to deliver to us the things that that God intends. So if if this cloak is is some kind of vestment, then maybe that's also what it conveys for Paul, that the office has never been about him, that the Christ whom he has proclaimed will strengthen and encourage him even all the way to the finish line. Mm.
0: As you were talking there about that possibility of the cloak being some kind of a vestment, it, it brought to mind something that I've thought at least to myself, several times while we've been reading Second Timothy. I don't think I've, I've said it out loud yet, but I'll go ahead and do that now. We talk about Paul passing, I think you used, used this language, passing his mantle onto Timothy. That's the the image that you get with Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. And actually, Elisha picks up Elijah's mantle, his his coat, his cloak. And just that, you know, it's almost, it makes me wonder about this verse. And I, again, I know this is speculation, but it makes me wonder if, if the cloak, the books, the parchment, that Paul intends to actually pass these on to Timothy, almost as a physical sign of what he's doing with this letter, saying, Timothy, you take the torch, you continue this ministry that's begun, you continue it, here's the tools that I use, now they belong to you. Again, I, that's maybe speculative, but I, I just I can't help but wonder it, and now I'm wondering it out loud. So,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I like that too. Um, and you're right, speculative, but we know that, that Paul encouraging Timothy in the office of the ministry is what he's aiming to do in this letter. So now if, if he's going to do that with, these, with the instruments of these books and scrolls and vestments, then that fits with the rest of what Paul is doing.
0: Now the next figure we get is Alexander. Here he's labeled the coppersmith, likely someone we've met in First Timothy. Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith in the first letter to Timothy, and here he's he's brought up in context of warning. This Alexander did Paul great harm, and he even prays the Lord, or he says the Lord will repay him according to his deeds, and warns Timothy to beware of him because he's a a strong opponent. Tell us a little bit about Alexander, Pastor Hammer.
1: Yeah, so if it's the same Alexander that we encountered in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, he's, he's there uh, with his uh, partner in, in crime, his partner in, in apostasy, um, and there in Paul's first letter to Timothy, it was a, a kind of example of, of church discipline mm-hmm. that, uh, that he exercised against Hymenaeus uh, and Alexander, when he says, "I have handed them over to Satan, that they may not learn to to blaspheme, um, that they they have made a shipwreck of their faith," so they're not they're not adversaries from the outside, people who have always been opposed to the message that Paul proclaimed. They're adversaries from the inside, that they once possessed faith, but now have shipwrecked their faith Um, and (laughs) that's not a a foreign illustration to Paul having endured a shipwreck himself he knows exactly what that's like Um, and he knows that that it is a, a destructive event and so he exercises church discipline he excommunicates them casts them outside the fellowship of the faithful hands them in his words he hands them over to Satan um, phrasing that's very similar to uh, 1 Corinthians 5, another example of Paul uh, commanding a church to practice discipline, so that they might learn not to blaspheme, that is, misuse the name of God. So we don't know exactly what their sins are, either there nor here at the end of this letter, um, but it's it's an attack from within the Church. So, now he's identified... Uh, Paul, Paul calls him out very particularly. He's Alexander, he's the coppersmith, and he did, did me great harm. Now, I, I don't think um, that that's, you know, sort of personal harm just against Paul. I think the fact that Paul earlier has, has warned Timothy that uh, he's one of two men who have shipwrecked their faith, who are guilty of blasphemy, Um, upon whom Paul has exercised church discipline, whom he has excommunicated. Um, I think the the harm that's done to Paul here is harm in his proclamation of the gospel. Um, And so, what what does Paul do? Um, He says, vengeance belongs to the Lord. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so, there's, there's a sense, right, that towards the end of his life, Paul, getting his affairs in order, wants to make sure he's not harboring any unwarranted anger, resentment, not holding on to a grudge against Alexander. He's not, he's not wishing that he could exact revenge against Alexander, but he is entrusting that vengeance to the one who will see all things through to their proper conclusion. He's seeing that that vengeance to the Lord. That it's not up to Paul, not up to. It, t- he's not asking Timothy. After I die, you get revenge for me against Alexander. Um, the only warning, the only exhortation for Timothy is in the next verse, when he says to him, "Beware of him. Um, you stay away from him because his opposition." Is against our message. So, first, it's it's an offense to Paul. He did me great harm. But then a warning to Timothy, because because Timothy and Paul and and all all the rest of the faithful are in the same boat. That is, this is our message. The gospel does not belong to Paul. It is it's ours. It's collective. It belongs to um, the whole church, and it's proclaimed by. Those who are put into the office of Christ, the office of the ministry, this is the same message. uh, The message that that Timothy proclaims is the same message Paul proclaims, and it's that message that Alexander is opposed to.
0: You see that same spirit from Paul not holding on to a grudge, not holding other sins against them. As the text continues, he starts talking about his first defense and he was left alone Everyone left, but he says, may it not be charged against them. Similar to the way I think our Lord prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. Here, Paul is, is similarly praying here toward the end of his life. And then he, he expresses this wonderful confidence. And I think verses 17 and 18 are just, they're so full. He, he says, the Lord was there. He stood by me. He strengthened me so that this ministry to all the Gentiles would be fulfilled. And then I love the way that he uses the word rescue here at the end of 17 and then into 18. Paul talks about his, his rescue from the lion's mouth this first time he was on trial. So perhaps the, the first part of his trial when he was put there in prison in Rome. So he was rescued then. And now he knows that the Lord is going to rescue him again, rescue him from every evil deed and bring me, bring him Paul safely into his heavenly kingdom. Just the way that he uses the word rescue in both of those situations where where the first time he's rescued physically, he's not actually put to death. The second time, he knows that the Lord's still going to rescue him, even in what turns out to be his, his martyrdom. It's just a fantastic way of looking at the Christian hope surrounding death, that we know that even in death, the Lord is, is going to rescue us. It's just a wonderful proclamation of hope here from the apostle.
1: Right, absolutely. The first rescue is temporary. Um, we know that, that eventually that rescue will seem to end, that, but, but we, we also know that not even death can separate us from the love that God has demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus. So Paul's confidence is beyond just temporary rescue, just his eventual execution uh, being stayed, put off for a moment... Um, but the real rescue, the full and complete rescue will be um, the one that the Lord Jesus will preserve him in the faith until the day of his death. And then at the return of the Lord Jesus will, will raise him from the dead. And in between is bringing me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So this is, this is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer uh, with the seventh petition, deliver us from evil, so that finally, when our last hour comes, the Lord would take us from this um, the the valley of uh, suffering, the, this veil of tears, and gather us with Himself um, to await the day of His return. Give us, the, the phrase from the Catechism is that He would give us a blessed end, So, death is never good. It's always evil. It's always a cancer in God's good creation. It's not there at the end of the sixth day of creation when God looks out and He calls everything that He has made very good. Um, And yet, death with faith is in fact, what we can say, a good death. like the line from the hymn, um, who dieth thus dies well. That is, dying with faith in Jesus. So even though it looks to the outsider like when Paul is killed for confessing Jesus to be the incarnate Son of God in whom sinners have redemption and the forgiveness of their sins, it looks like he's not rescued. It looks like God has failed him. It looks like um, this... Supposed prophet is silenced by the the Roman Emperor's death sentence upon him But Paul confesses before that happens that the Lord will rescue me even from even in the midst of this evil deed this this killing him for Proclaiming Christ and him crucified and yet gather me safely into his heavenly kingdom resurrection is is rescue it means that in the end all those who belong to the Lord Jesus are fully and completely rescued whatever things look like for the time being it looks like the church is suffering and she's declining in numbers and people get older and and there's more funerals than baptisms and and it looks like Funerals are the failure of the Lord's Church, but they're not. Funerals for those who belong to the Lord, for his elect, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, not because of their death, but because they are in the Lord. And Paul knows that even in death, the Lord Jesus is rescuing him. Um, in, In his letter to the Philippians, whether to depart and be with the Lord, I know to be with the Lord is far better but he keeps me here to be with you for now. Well, the time of his departure is at hand, and he will be with the Lord Jesus, and on the day of the Lord's return, the day of the resurrection of all the dead, the resurrection of the body, the language of the creed, that, that will be um, the, the full and complete rescue that the Church has been guaranteed in the waters of baptism where we are united, not just into Christ's death, but also into, into his resurrection. I mean, you're, you're seeing all the, all the words that Paul has used to encourage all the other churches, to confess the faith to all the other churches. You're seeing all those things play out in his own life, right? Why does he have courage to face martyrdom? Because Paul says, in baptism, you were united into the Lord's death and into his resurrection. And if he really rose from the dead, then we will really rise from the dead. Um, just like he said to the church in Rome, and to the church in Corinth, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then all of our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and my being in prison, he might as well have said, is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of them that sleep. So he knows He's sort of, he's preaching to himself here, right? He's mm-hmm. encouraging himself. The Lord will rescue me. Resurrection is guaranteed.
0: That's, that's where Paul started this epistle. He, he started this epistle, he's called himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life. That is in Christ Jesus. He started with that promise of resurrection, and he's ending with it here, the Lord's rescue. And I love it. He, he's preaching to himself. He's he's remembering everything that he wrote to all of those churches, all the letters that we've got here in the New Testament. He's remembering all of that. Now he's preaching it to himself, even as he writes to Timothy to, to carry on, to hold on to this word, to continue the ministry. For God's saints. And and he ends wonderfully. The Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. Grace be with you, with all of you, all these people named, and with the whole Church of God in Christ Jesus. Pastor Jeff Hemmer is the pastor at Bethany Lutheran Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, helping us this morning with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Pastor Hemmer, thanks for being our guest this morning.
1: It has been a pleasure, as always. Thank you for a wonderful conversation.
0: The Lord will rescue us from every evil deed. That rescue is coming, my friends. It is coming on the last day when our Lord returns and takes us to his heavenly kingdom forever. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. We'll start Titus tomorrow morning. Talk to you then.